trick. So, mess. crystal myth podcast so i'm just gonna do a little mini recording this week mini pause because unfortunately there has been some illnesses and sadly personal reasons why our other hosts can't be on um to record this week but hopefully it'll all be good next week and we can then um follow up on our our episode all about ancient Egypt gods and goddesses and I thought I would just um, have a little taster of the, that topic by reading a few stories from a book I've got called Isis Magic by M. Isidore Forrest. I've always been interested in ancient Egyptian mythology, particularly drawn to the goddess Isis. I've got a tattoo of her on my back and I've got a ring um, representing her that I wear and various statues of her. Um, I like the symbolism of her as a great mother, goddess magic, protector of healing. Doesn't necessarily mean that I worship her as a real goddess. I just, I'm just interested in her. So I bought this book back when I was a teenager I've never actually read the whole thing. Maybe I should get into it. But <clears throat> these are stories that are about Isis and particularly her magic. So I've got a chapter here called The Magic of the Name. So I'll just read it out. Hopefully you'll like it. So strong was Isis's association with magic that her name remained a name to conjure with throughout the history of her worship. For indeed, in, ancient, in Egyptian tradition, it is by the power of the name and sacred words, both spoken and written, that most conjuring is accomplished. Isis works her magic through the perfect pronunciation of words of power, also known as Hekau in ancient Egypt. She recited formulae with the magical power of her mouth. Being skilled of tongue and never halting for a word, being perfect in command and word, Isis the magician avenged her brother. Also, her brother is also her husband, which is weird, but quite normal in ancient Egypt. So... His name is Osiris, you may have heard of him. He's the Lord of the Dead, the Underground, Multiplication, Resurrection, all that stuff. Words contain the power of magic. Even the letters that form words are sacred and magical. 
Thus, correct pronunciation is crucial for releasing the power within. Isis, the archetypal magician, pronounces the formulae perfectly. The power inherent in the Egyptian language remains a constant in Egyptian magical consciousness. Even as late as the 2nd or 3rd century CE, Egyptians knew their own language to be the true sacred language. In this hermetic treatise from that period, Asclepius is speaking to King Amon about books written in Egyptian that will be entirely unclear when the Greeks eventually desire to translate our language to their own and thus produce in writing the greatest distortion and unclarity. But this discourse, expressed in our ancestral language, keeps clear the meaning of its words. The very quality of the speech and the sound of the Egyptian words have in themselves the energy of the objects they speak of. Therefore, my king, insofar as you have the power, who are all powerful, keep the discourse uninterrupted, lest mysteries of such greatness come to the Greeks, lest the extravagant, flaccid and, as it were, dandified Greek idiom extinguish something stately and concise. The energetic idiom of the Egyptian usage, for the Greeks have empty speeches, O king, that are energetic only in what they demonstrate, and this is the philosophy of the Greeks, an inane philosophy of speeches. We, by contrast, use not speeches, but sounds full of action. So I find it interesting that nobody really knows how the ancient Egyptians spoke or what the tone was or what the accent was like. We do know that there's no vowels so in their language and it's mostly, it's pretty much all like pictorial based and hieroglyphics. But I find it really interesting that no one actually knows how they spoke or what they sounded like. I'd love to be able to go back in time and hear, hear what an ancient Egyptian accent or voice would sound like, male and female, child, whatever. So it goes on. If Egyptian words contain the energy of the objects they speak of and are sounds full of action, Egyptian names were even more powerful. In the name is the essence of a thing, its nature, its heka. The name reverberates with the power of creation. To know the name is to know the thing itself, like the familiar ba and ka, the ren or name was a separate vital and very real part of a being's essential nature. In a well-known tale about a disheartened man who disputed with his ba about whether he should commit suicide, it is said that the name is the only thing that truly survives death. Which, when you think about it, you know, people live on through the names and the memories of others that remember them, so by remembering someone's name, you keep their memory alive. The day that you forget someone's name or no longer know them is like a second death, essentially. You just disappear from history altogether, which is quite sad and a little bit terrifying. But then if you're like me and you just think, well, you're dead, it doesn't really matter, there's no afterlife or anything, then it shouldn't really matter at all to you. But it is quite sad. All right. So moving on from that, the importance of the name never faded for Egyptians in the way that the soul has become mere metaphor for many of us. 
the name consistently reflected the truth of a person's being. An example of this is from a text known as the Papyrus Dodgen. In it, a devotee is berated by his god for misdeeds and is instructed to change his name now that his sinful innermost nature is known. Convicted criminals sometimes had their names changed as part of their sentence. Names such as Ray hates him, which is basically saying God hates you, or the demon were a serious part of the punishment. The knowing of names was an important aspect of the journey through the Egyptian overworld as well. One had to know the names of deities, gates, and even the parts of the ship that would ferry one to the blessed land. To aid remembering, these names were recorded in the Book of Coming Forth by Day and entombed with the dead. Such knowledge would help ensure that one joined the deities after death and that one's own name would live forever. Oh, badass. So now I come to the story of Isis, the goddess Isis, and the name of Ray, also known as the sun god Ra. It's quite a, an interesting story that I've always really enjoyed. So I hope you enjoy it as well. The following myth is the most famous example of Egyptian name magic and has been called the prototype of the magical act. In it, Isis learns the utterly powerful secret name of the sun god Ray. I'll tell the story as told in the Papyrus of Turin, then offer an interpretation of the tale I believe will make it more relevant to modern women and men. Here then is the myth of Isis and Ray. Isis was in the form of a woman wise in speech. Her heart was more subtle than the millions of human beings. Her magic words were more excellent than the millions of gods. She was more perceptive than the millions of glorified spirits. She was not ignorant of anything in heaven or on earth. Yet Isis pondered in her heart how she could become even more powerful, equal in power and rank to Ray, the lord of all the deities. In her heart, she decided that this might be accomplished by learning the most secret name of Ray, the name that no one save Ray himself knew. Now behold, Ray came into heaven each day at the head of the holy crew of the boat of millions of years, and he established himself on the throne of the two horizons. But the divine one had grown old, and he dribbled at the mouth. His spittle fell upon the ground. Isis, the magician, took up some of this spittle and kneaded it with earth in her hand and she created a deadly viper, which is a snake. In her hand, the serpent remained motionless. It moved not to harm her. Then Isis set the snake down among the path that Ray daily took across the sky as he travelled through his kingdom. The next day... As Ray and his followers went on their morning rounds, Ray passed by the serpent and it bit him. The holy cobra sunk its fangs into Ray and he cried out, the power of his cries reaching into heaven. The deities in heaven said, what is it? And the crew of the boat of millions of years said, what is it? But Ray could not answer them. His jaws locked, his limbs quaked, the poison rushed through him like the Nile rushes through Egypt. 
Then Ray made strong his heart, and finally he called out to his crew, O ye gods and goddesses, who come from me, I will tell you what happened. A deadly thing has wounded me. My heart knows it, but my hands did not make it. My eyes have not seen it. Who did this to me, I know not. Never have I felt pain such as this. I am a prince, son of a prince. I am a great one, son of a great one. I am of many names and many forms. I am an every deity. My mother and father spoke my name and they hid it within my body so that none could have power over me. Yet see what has happened. I have been stung by something I know not what. Can it be fire? Can it be water? My heart is on fire. My limbs tremble. My flesh shivers. I cannot see the sky. Sweat covers me. Oh, bring me those deities, my children, who possess magical powers, whose mouths are skilled in speech, those mighty ones who might cure me. The gods and goddesses came to Ray, weeping, and the goddess Isis came, too, bringing her magic. In her mouth was the breath of life. Her formulae are the dead made to live, and evil is repelled. What has happened, divine father? asked Isis. Explain it to me. Could it be something thou hast created has raised its head against thee? My word shall drive it out. I shall make it depart at the sight of thy bright rays. The god explained to Isis all that had occurred, and he reiterated his complaints and his pain. O tell to me thy great name, thy secret name, said Isis. For whoever is delivered by, by thy name shall live. I made the heavens, I made the earth, I knit together the mountains. If I open my eyes, there is light. If I shut them, there is darkness, said Ray. And he spoke for long minutes of the many wonders he had created and the many powers he possessed. But Isis said, What thou hast said is not thy name. O tell it to me, so that I may draw the venom forth from thee. It is he who revealeth his name that shall live. The fire of the poison burned in the divine God, and as it was fierce and the pain was unbearable even for a god, his majesty Ray spoke out. I give myself over to Isis that she may search me and my name shall pass from my body into hers. And Ray hid himself from the deities and the throne and the boat of millions of years was empty for a time. Isis also made Ray swear an oath that he would give over to her son, Horus, his two eyes, the sun and the moon. This Ray swore as his secret name passed into Isis. Then Isis, the mistress of magic, said, I am Isis, it is I who work, it is I who cause the poison to come forth and fall upon the ground. Venom, come forth from Ray. Ray lives and the poison dies. The venom dies and Ray lives. And it all happened just as Isis, the mighty lady, the queen of the gods, who knew by his own name, said. So she tricked Ray into giving him his power, giving her his powerful name, thus making her all powerful as well. So she basically got his divine power. I don't know how moral that is. You'd think Ray would be a bit pissed off of her if he knew what she'd done. So it goes on to say a new meaning for an old myth. So in this tale, we meet the Lady of Magic as a trickster. Like Loki, I guess, from like the Norse gods. A natural role for a mercurial magician and one in which we will find her more than once. 
The goddess's divine trickster is an interesting turnabout. In most pantheons, that role is taken by a male deity, as I said, such as Loki of Norse myth, the Greek Hermes, or the Welsh uh, Gwydion, I think. In Egypt, however, the role belongs to Isis and Isis alone. For even though the god Thoth is as great a magician as Isis, he employs his power in a different way. He persuades, records knowledge, distributes justice. Like Isis, he heals, but he does not use his power in the cunning way we have just seen Isis wield hers. According to this myth, Isis gains two important things by means of a deception. For her son, she secures additional power by having Ray bequeath him the sun and moon as eyes. For herself, she achieves equality with the most powerful god in the universe. What a badass bitch. What are we to make of this? Shall we consider the Lady of Magic to be an underhanded goddess? Is she just another tricky female? Perhaps she was forced to resort to magical artifice to break through a divine glass ceiling. Or perhaps we can see in this myth evidence of a quite different theme, an older theme, the theme of the old king who must die and be renewed by the goddess in order to rightly rule once more. I believe that is the interpretation along these lines that yields the most fruit for those who wish to know the goddess today. We learn from the papyrus that Ray was old and dribbled at the mouth. In other words, he was so old that he drooled. In a time when the pharaoh was considered a god and therefore should be the epitome of physical, mental and spiritual perfection, it would hardly be acceptable to have a ruler so old he drooled. In fact, there are many myths from throughout the world that address the necessity of having a healthy young king take the throne from an older one who has expended his powers. The death of the holy king of the holy king, sorry, in Celtic countries, the ritual combat to the death at the grave of Nimi between the outgoing priest of Diana and an incoming hopeful of fairian legends of the wounded king of the wasteland and the many other tales of the dying gods and of the sacred earth religions in which the god must die in order to be reborn, all point to the archetypical nature of this theme. So does that count as Jesus as well? Because he has to be sacrificed to be reborn? Or maybe not, I don't know, I'll look into that. In the story of Isis and Ray, even though Ray is old to the point of drilling, he does not relinquish rulership. No successor challenges him. He continues along his path in the heavens. Thus, it is left to the goddess, a goddess known for her magical power, a goddess who has always been associated with renewal and can, in fact, raise the dead, a goddess with life in her mouth to create the conditions that force the old ruler to the point of renewal. Isis uses the evidence of Ray's own weakness, his drool, to create the vehicle for bringing him to renewal. An ancient Egyptian conception of spittle as a means of creation may also be in effect here. Saliva, semen, blood, sweat, milk or other bodily fluids of deities were known to be generative. In this case, since the fluid is unconsciously drooled out rather than purposely spit out, it may be seen as a waste of the god's power. Yet, the goddess does not let it go to waste. Instead, she mixes the spittle with earth. Earth is the place of renewal from which life grows. It is the dark, rich place, the source of earthly life. 
the mixture of life-giving earth with the symbol of wasted life, the spittle, produces a serpent which is called a holy cobra. It is a mixture of life in that, is made in that it is made partly of earth and will ultimately cause Ray to be healed and death in that it is made from the wasted generative power of Ray and is a symbol of his unfitness for his throne. It is also significant that the vehicle of renewal is a serpent, an almost universal symbol of renewal due to the snake's ability to shed its skin and emerge new from the experience. In the form of the holy cobra, Ray's own weakness strikes him and brings him more pain than he has ever before experienced. He quakes with cold and burns with fire. When Isis comes to heal him, she asks Ray to reveal his true name, for he who revealeth his name shall live. On the face of it, it is simple blackmail. Tell me what I want to know, or you're going to die. But something more profound lies beneath the surface. Ray is being forced to reveal a most secret and inner part of himself to the goddess. To be healed, he must make himself vulnerable to the Lady of Renewal. He must accept both her help and her very real power, a power equal to, if not greater, than his own. The trickster's tricks teach important lessons. Once Ray gives himself over to Isis, he is healed, renewed in strength and power. Further, he is initiated into the great mystery of the goddess's cycle of life, death and renewal. He learns that he must give up in order to gain. He learns trust in the goddess, whom he has been forced to trust. And the goddess proves herself worthy. In no successive myth do we ever find any evidence that Isis abuses the ultimate power she has gained. For us today, the story of Isis and Ray teaches that we too must be willing to acknowledge and trust divinity in order to bring its healing power into our lives. Most especially, we need to acknowledge the power of goddess and to make ourselves open to her. Only then can we bring her healing and renewing power into our lives. When we reveal ourselves to her, we can know her and be known by her. We may, then, we may then enter into mystical communion with her and the natural cycle of decay and renewal that is guided by her hand. The tale also teaches that it can sometimes be painful to bring the full power of divinity into our lives. Often our ego, in astrology symbolised by the sun and an apt correspondence to Ray, fights us. The ego believes, wrongly, that acknowledging the divine power will mean its own annihilation. It believes that it faces death, just as Ray believed he did. We must learn, as Ray did, that we can feel secure in the hands of the goddess, that being open, even vulnerable to her, won't harm us, but heal us. Further, we may find that if we cannot bring ourselves to be open to the goddess, or for monotheists, the feminine aspects of God, that she will find a dramatic way to bring this to our attention. Well, that was interesting. I wonder if there's anything else on here. I think there was something back here that was interesting about Matt, who is the mother of truth. Yeah, here we go. Okay, so this is about Moot, the vulture mother. This goddess's name identifies her positively as one of the great Egyptian mother goddesses. For her name is simply Mother. It is spelled with the vulture hieroglyph, 
which connects her with one of the two ladies of Egypt, Nekhebet, the vulture goddess, who was the protectress of Upper Egypt. According to Horopolo, reputedly an Egyptian magus of the 4th century CE, Egyptian tradition maintained there were no male vultures. Female vultures were thought to remain virgin, but became pregnant by exposing their vulvas to the north winds. Thus, the virgin vulture mother brought forth her children parthenogenically. Horapolo also explained that the vulture hieroglyph, in addition to signifying a mother, was used to indicate the sky because the Egyptians believed that the creation of heavens was the work of a mother goddess. This reinforces the connection between the containing sky, the vulture goddesses Mut and Nekhebet, and other sky container goddesses such as Nuit and Hathor. Mut was conceived as coming into existence by herself, for she contained the powers of both female and male. To indicate her androgyny, the Book of Coming Forth by Day, popularly called the Book of the Dead, shows Mut with a phallus, or rise a big cock. It is said that she was never born, but was instead self-produced. The temple walls of her ruined temple in Thebes are carved with texts which name her the Lady of Heaven and the Queen of the Gods, epithets which she shares with the other great goddesses. Furthermore, it is said that Mut existed in the Nun and that she giveth birth, but was herself not born of any. Mut is completely self-contained goddess. She is both male and female, virgin and mother. Like the other great goddesses, she is the divine totality, for she contains all. Which then takes us to Hathor, who is a cow goddess. And she's associated with Isis in several ways, but she's also known as the goddess of love. Hathor is one of the most important goddesses of ancient Egypt. Within Egypt, she was well-loved and well-known as Isis, and in later periods, the two goddesses shared so many attributes that they were almost indistinguishable. Not only did they share characteristics and functions, but both Isis and Hathor were associated with a Horus god, although not the same one. In the Ptolemaic period, which is when the Greeks took over Egypt, Isis and Hathor even shared sacred temple properties. The holy island of Philae, on which stood the most famous temple of Isis, was also the site of a smaller but older Hathor temple. Hathor's famous temple at Dendra honoured Isis with a small temple there. Dendra was also called Perek in Aset, the place of the Noin, or perhaps Gnosis, of Isis. Hathor's name, Hoet Hor, means House of Horus and associates her with the falcon-headed sky god Horus. At his house and his abode, Hathor contains Horus. This is true whether we think of the house of Horus as the goddess's womb, in which she carried him, or as the enveloping sky that is her body, and in which the falcon god flies. An alternative interpretation of Hathor's name is my house in the sky, which indicates that she could also be known to abide in the sky as well as being the sky. Like Isis, Hathor is an extremely complex deity. Her aspects and powers are many. She is at once sky goddess, tree goddess, primordial goddess, nurturer of the dead, royal goddess, love goddess, goddess of divine intoxication, and goddess of frenzied destruction. 
In ancient times, one of her most popular manifestations was as a great and beautiful wild cow bearing between her horns the golden solar disk, which she raises up to heaven. Even when she is shown in human form, Hathor consistently wears horns and disc as her crown. In addition, she is one of the few Egyptian deities to be illustrated full face rather than in profile. When shown in this manner, she is given strikingly beautiful human features with the ears of a cow. The combination of human face and bovine ears may at first sound ludicrous, but these images of Hathor are actually quite beautiful and exude a gentleness that is irresistibly attractive. She, or a cow goddess identified with her, possibly Bat, is carved on the famous Narmar palette, which is dated to the earliest periods of Egyptian civilization. In her aspect as the great cow, <laughs> Hathor nourishes the world, the pharaoh and especially the dead. In fact, Hathor was so closely associated with the Egyptian mortuary cult that in the same way that the deceased person was traditionally called the Osiris to identify him with the ever-living lord of the dead, during the Greco-Roman period, dead women were occasionally called the Hathor, or even the Osiris Hathor. As tree goddess, Hathor is known as the Lady of the Sycamore, a title she shares with Isis. She is usually shown as the spirit of the tree, reaching out from its branches to provide food and drink for the deceased. Mythologically, the Holy Sycamore was a tall tree on the eastern horizon in which the deities were seated and beneath which the otherworld deities lived. Hathor can either be a leafy tree or a bear tree, symbolising life and death respectively. She, like Mut and Nuit, can be seen to encompass the polarities within herself. More than any other Egyptian goddess, Hathor is a goddess of love. In the later Hellenistic period, she and Isis were commonly identified with Aphrodite, Ishtar and Astarte. It is Hathor who brings lovers together as demonstrated in the love song below from one of the Chester Beatty Papyri. I prayed to her, Hathor, and she heard my prayer. She destined my mistress for me. And she, his beloved, came of her own will to see me. How tremendous is that which overcame me. I rejoice, I exult, I am very proud since the moment when it was said, see, here she is. Hathor is also mistress of the fruits of love, for she is a lady of fertility and human beast and field. Indeed, Hathor rules other joyful things as well. As queen of happiness, she is a lady of dance, song and intoxication, both divine and mundane. Music, dancing and poetry are especially pleasing to her and many beautiful hymns were written for her. Beer, wine and intoxication they bring are also pleasing to the lady. Her festivals with their ecstatic dancing and imbibing identify her as a deity similar to the Greek lord of wine and ecstasy, Dionysos. Yet beautiful Hathor also has a fierce aspect that is sometimes expressed by showing her in the form of a lioness. In one of the few myths that we have that feature Hathor, she is called the Eye of the Sun and is sent out by the sun god Ray to punish the human beings who had been plotting against him. In vengeance, she begins to slay humanity and enjoys her work so much that the deities fear the complete annihilation of humankind. To stop her, 
They cause to be brewed a huge quantity of beer and colour it with red dye so it looks like blood. This they place in her path, seeing the blood she begins to drink, finally becoming so drunk that her frenzy subsides and she forgets all about slaying humanity. So the drinking, music and dancing of her festivals not only celebrate the abundance of life Hathor provides, but also pacify the fierce the goddess's fierce aspect. Now that story about her going out slaying humanity in the form of a lioness is also one that I've heard associated with the goddess Sekhmet, who's also a lion-headed goddess of war. So those two can also be, I suppose, like switched about. So I'm not sure which one is true and which one isn't, but the both applies to that. The, the story applies to those same goddesses. So I think that's the thing in ancient Egypt. There's lots of different gods and they all have their own stories, but they're also sort of crossover with different gods and goddesses, which is interesting. So that's just a wee taster of what we can be talking about in our next episode when hopefully myself, Mark and Yasmin are all back together and we can have a good old laugh. So until that time, thank you for listening and goodbye. Bye. Crystal. Man.